Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Right, we're going three, two, one. Lions TV, Lions Lounge Lockdown. Episode three. I'm knocking them down on skittles at the minute, mate. Richard Sadlier. How are you, mate? How are you doing? How are you doing? You well. Thanks so much for uh, giving us your time. Let's get on to your middle career. Obviously, a one mm. club man. 1996 mm. uh, 1996. 1996 to two thousand and four. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Obviously, a boy from Ireland going to Millwall. How 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 did that come about? You get into the den. So I was playing for a schoolboy club called Belvedere. And I think the under-14 manager of Belvedere also happened to be Millwall's Republic of Ireland-based scout. Um, and he knocked on the house one night, um, came into the sitting room and said, listen, we'd invite you over on a trial. Um, and so this was kind of early February 95, that kind of time. Um, so I went on my first trial within a month, around Easter time, whenever that was. And it was absolutely shocking. Um, what's, what's, uh, yeah, I was, I was sh- like beyond shocking. Um, <laughs> and th- like, there are some scouts who'll tell you, you, you know, I, I could see, I, I could see what others couldn't, and you know, yeah, blah, 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 yeah. but, but I, I showed nothing, honestly, there was nothing whatsoever. So, I think the reason that they asked me back was they must have, they must have realized that I completely froze, or they, the, you know, whatever they did, the yeah. So, so I was asked back. Um, and they actually offered me a two-year deal in the summer of 95, but I had a year left in my school. Um, and my managers at the time, like the, num- the, the, the amount of kids who leave this country to go to the UK, hoping to be the next big thing, tiny percentage of them even make a career, let alone do anything decent. So I thought, better off doing and finishing school. So I did that. And then uh, went over the following summer, August 96, on a one-year non-contract. Uh, so it wasn't quite YTS, um, but it wasn't professional status. It was called non-contract for some reason. Um, so that's where it was. Um, so when you first went over, was you in Dicks? How would that have you been? You'd been 15, 14? It, it was, I was actually, by the time I went over the second time, um, when I went on trial first, I was 16, um, and I was in Diggs, and I hit the jackpot Diggs-wise. I, I really liked it. And that was the house that I stayed in when I moved over. Reason being, it was on the corner 
of Calmont Road, where the training ground is. Yeah. Calmont yeah. Road meets Ashgrove Road. There's a house there on the corner. So that's where I moved into. It was just with a couple. They were about 40 or 45 or something. They had no kids. They just had a dog. So I was in there with Phil Smith, the U-team goalkeeper. So didn't have to drive, put that off for years. No traffic, nothing. Just rolled out of bed straight <laughs> into training every morning. It was brilliant. That's what I was going to ask you as well. What other players came through? Because you're, you're obviously... You're a year older than me, which means makes you slightly older than Reedy and Ice. What sort of players come through the same yeah. time as you? So, Danny Ockton. Yes. Me, me yes. and Danny were the we, me and Danny were the the we played up front in the U team together. Um, Dean Cannaville would have been our age as well. Dean yeah. had a lot of injuries, so that kind of that 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 uh, set him back as well. Um, Phil Smith was the goalkeeper. He had a good few first team appearances as well. But it was the the younger. I think. Eiffel and Joe Dolan were a year younger, or maybe two years younger than us. Um, Timmy was a year younger than me, I think. Um, Reedy was a year younger than that as well. So we had this weird spell where over about the spell of three or four years, about seven of us came through the academy at the one time. Um, yeah, yeah. But I actually didn't think... We, we were kind of, you're kind of told fairly early on that, you know, squad photo of 18 lads you know that probably four will get a contract. Um, and of those four that get a contract, maybe two of you will get a second contract. Um, but the, the, like, the, the odds are against you. So you're, you're told all this to begin with. So I actually didn't think I was going to be one of the ones because Danny Ockton got in the first team before I did. So I was like, well, they clearly rate him. And how many people in the same position at the same age are they going to yes, stop? Yes. Um, and Dean Canova was brilliant as well. The only thing that held him back was he, he kept getting injured. So... Um, I very nearly jacked it in when I, I moved over to, to London in August 96 and then in the last week of January I actually rang home and said fuck it I, I'm done um, it, it wasn't so much that I didn't like the club I did I just thought there's no point in me being here um, couldn't, couldn't I, see you working your way in yeah happy to make all the sacrifices being away from home yeah. being away from my mates it's a shit social life you just train you go home because I didn't know anyone and any of the lads my age who were from London they had friends and family that they went back to after training so you're not really doing much so I'd, I'd happily do this forever if I knew it was going to be for something but I convinced myself that I wasn't going to make it um, so I rang, rang my family on a Tuesday night and said uh, I think I was in tears and everything I was like I'm done. This is like waste of time. Don't know why I thought I'd be any good anyway. I, I'm done. And I was speaking to my mum actually on the phone, and she was like, uh, she just talked me down and just said, just, just don't, don't book the flight tonight. It was a Tuesday night, so just, just go to bed, see how you feel Sleep in the morning. <laughs> Sleep on it. And um, so I did. Slept on it. Felt better in the morning. And. It was a Wednesday, I think, with a day off. Went into training on the Thursday, and then I was told that I'm going to be training with the first team on the Friday. I have a good chance of making my debut on the Saturday. Just out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. I was like, fucking, this is, wow, this is amazing. I could, like, there's no, there's no news you could have given me that would have made me more happy than the news I just got. So I trained on the Friday with the first team, and then Jimmy Nickel was the manager. Right. He called me into his office afterwards, and he gave me a bit of a pep talk. And he started just praising me for a load of things. He said, you know, right. we've been keeping an eye on you in training. And I didn't think they were watching me at all. And he says, uh, you've kept your nose clean as well. Because I was hanging around with a couple of lads who, who kept getting caught for all the things they did wrong. So they just assumed I was going to go that way as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he said, uh, I, I can't 
promise because obviously we don't know how the game is going to go, but you know, you have a good chance you're going to make your debut tomorrow. Brilliant. So, actually, I had I'd met a girl over Christmas in Dublin, and she, her, and her mate, her mate was seeing some player from, from Tottenham, and uh, the two of them came over on the Friday. So, I thought. You're not normally meant to go out on a Friday night of a Saturday game, but I didn't know that I was playing on a Saturday and she'd come over, so I better go up. So I went up to Oh, well, so she, she had already been arranged for her so to come flight, over. Flight and booked, exactly. So the flight had been booked, so I was to meet her seven or eight o'clock up in her, in, to get her booked into where she was staying. And her flight was delayed, and I thought, fuck, I better go. And I said, like, I can't. Like, she's come over to see me, so I've got to go up to this hotel. Course. Anyway, by the time she came, checked her in, said hello, said goodbye. I'm on a train in Victoria Station at about a quarter past eleven. Um, this this is not where I'm meant to be the night before my debut. Anyway, so the whistle goes, and the, so the, the train's about to leave. Whistle goes, he's on the whatever, all in, whatever, and then two blokes bundle their way into the train, carrying bags, sweaty, all out of breath. It was Jerry the physio and Jimmy fucking Nickel. Oh my God! What are the chances? I'm sitting there, and, and they were coming. So the door was to the left in front of me, and so they're coming this way towards me on the train, and I'm sitting here, and there's nowhere else to hide. Like all the seats are taken, so I can't dive on the floor or anything. I was like, I'm gonna get caught. And J- Jerry walks first, doesn't see me, walks past. I was like, I could get away with this. And then Jimmy walks along, and he sees me, and he just looks down, didn't smile, said not. He just says. You're in the doghouse, son. Oh. <laughs> Shook his head, the most serious expression, and walked on. So I'm sitting there in the train going, okay, you've blown it now. Every bit of the speech that he gave you that afternoon, you've just undone it all. You've gone from there to there and now. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is... So I slept really well that night. No nerves about the debut because I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to make my debut because... There's no coming back yeah, from this. Not me now. So, I went, so I went into the dressing room, told the lads, and, and uh, most of them were much older than me. It wasn't a young squad then. I think Barry Lucas, Neil, and maybe Bert, they were all mid-twenties, I think. And uh, so everyone was laughing and slagging, and it kind of set me down a little bit. But anyway, turns out, he named me on the subs bench anyway. I was one of three. It was back in the days when there was only three subs. And I played for the last 25 minutes or so. Um I loved it, but I found out years later, about three years later, that after that phone call to my mother, she rang my Belvedere manager. Right. He rang Bob Pearson, the chief scout. He rang Jimmy Nicola, manager, and said, we've got to do something for this kid to keep him here. So I basically got my debut out of sympathy. And <laughs> <laughs> um, somehow managed to, 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 to keep my place in the subs bench on the Saturday, despite being caught out on the Friday night. That's what I was going to say. Was that a coincidence, or do you think? I, I, I assumed something like that might have happened. I thought it mean, may have been the people that you was dig, like you was in digs with. They might have said, "Look, he ain't too, too keen." But yeah, your mum, your mum put the call in. Cheers, yeah, was, yeah, it was all those phone calls um, because I, I would have been struggling with the homesickness thing. Um, that's what I was. Gonna, that was another thing I was going to ask you. Like, you said you didn't go out much, and you said you was living right on the corner of Calmont Road, but. A young lad from Ireland. I mean, I don't know where you live in Ireland, but it's, it's not it's, it's not as populated as, as uh, South East London. I know, I know that for sure. So was that was that difficult? Was that strange for you? Or yeah, well, there, there, there wasn't there, there wasn't. I think the toughest thing to do was just get used to the training because it was all a lot quicker and obviously more professional, and the standards were better. And all the players I was playing with and against in all the matches, they were way better than I was playing with and against in Dublin and. 
and then you have to adjust to just having no family or friends around. But the mm. social life, there's there's not much you can do because, um, so like this is before the internet. This is before Skype or all the million ways in which you can keep in contact with someone. Yeah, yeah. No I, Instagram. Don't, I, I don't even think I had a mobile phone. Um, no, I remember no. I, I delayed getting a mobile phone because I thought that was just for flash fuckers. I thought it was a fad that wouldn't last. No, every they night. Were, they were expensive back in the day. It was about three, four hundred quid when they first came yeah. out and all. And, and massive, yeah. <laughs> no man of one. <laughs> so mo- most, of my, most of my evenings would be spent from six o'clock onwards on the, the house phone, on the landline in my digs, just speaking to mates and family from home. Um, because a lot of the other lads my age who were in digs, they went home every weekend to spend with their family. So and there's not a lot, there's not a lot to do. Um, so it was, it was, you just kind of deal with the boredom and just get on with it that way. Yeah. You know, you're saying, obviously, a lot of you came through. Um, I made the mistake. I actually thought you was the same age as I am, really. Really, but looking through you slightly older. And you said there was a good, you know, hardly anyone makes it, but a good core of players that came through. Do you think that was down to sheer coincidence, good scouting, or you know, just the way the club was being run at the time? I think a, a variety of all, all of those things. Right. I think you can have the best coaches in the world, but if you don't have someone like Stephen Reid to work with, you're not going to produce a player like Stephen Reid or Timmy Cahill or, or, or Ives. And, um, and as well, just there was there was just a, a an environment or a, just the way the club was at the time. Um, Millwall's never been a, a club that can spend a load of money in the transfer market, yeah. so they're always going to re- rely on kids if kids are anyway good. So we knew we were all at a club that if we were in any way good, we'd get a half a chance. Um, but it was just a freak few years where the potential that a few of us had, um, we were in the hands of coaches that could rinse every drop of potential. Yeah. Um, and the club, like when I, when I made my debut in 1st of February 97. Who was that against? you remember? Home against Bristol City. Um, and the following, following Saturday, I played away against Wrexham. No, I think it was Wrexham um, or Walsall. And then on the Monday, three days later, 22 members of staff were sacked. The club was put in administri- administration. So, so Jimmy Nichols gone, Martin Harvey's gone, Ian McDonald, the youth team coach, is gone. A load of the administrative staff in the club are gone. And we were brought into a room then with the administrators and we were told the future of the club is at risk. Um, we want you all to take a, a wage cut. Every one of you are on the transfer. There was no transfer windows back then, but every single one of you are for sale. For sale. And any of you players that the club owes you money, a lot of them would have been due transfer fees or bonus payments or whatever. They could forget about that. So the morale was rock bottom. Like, couldn't have been worse. So everyone's worrying about their jobs. They're pissed off they're not going to get paid money. And now they've been asked to take a wage cut. And I was sitting there at 18 years of age, like, not having a clue what was going on. And in any of the team meetings... It's not the 18-year-olds that do any of the talking. You just <laughs> shut up. Do you know what I mean? And like 10%, 10% wage for me was £17.50. So like that's, that's that was, what he was on. I, I was on 175 quid plus yeah. gigs. Yeah, yeah. And then it, do you know what I mean? The 10% of that isn't worth even discussing. So it was like the, the older lads were making all the calls and, and everyone said, we're not taking this wage cut. Um, and then John Doherty was brought in as manager. And... I don't think he was hugely popular with the squad at the time. It was a difficult job to do because he was walking into a dressing room which was in chaos. We seemed to have a lot of players on the books at that time. 
And I remember, like, social media, obviously, there wasn't even a thing. And I remember he said, everyone's game, everyone's going to get their opportunity to play for the club again under me. And I remember he brought in Luton away. He brought Tony Dolby back in. I, Tony Dolby hadn't kicked a football in the first team for about two years. Mm. I just remember we just had loads of players in the reserves. There was no 23s then, was it? There was, there was four professionals in, in yeah. the rest and, and the first team. Yeah, you two, like senior teams, the first team and the, and the reserve team. So there was a load of players and I believe the wage bill was quite high yeah. for a club of our size at that time. So um, it, it was difficult. If I had experience of knowing what first team football was like, I'd probably sit there and go, God, this is difficult compared to all the other experiences I have. But yeah. I had no other experience. This is all I was used to. It was just like, okay, this is what there is. So the manager that gave me my debut, he'd been sacked. So Jimmy's gone at this point. And all the promises of a new contract, if we did well, that they made to me when I signed, yeah. it's like, I, I don't think I don't think they're allowed to even sign us anymore. They're not allowed to spend money on anything. Um, the, the focus now is trying to just survive. So it must have been tough, mate. Being away from home, wanting to go home, not sure of your future. It yeah, might but I, you, you think, and then and then that happens. It's but it's more looking back now when I kind of lay out all the things that were yeah. on the table at the time. You think that was a bit weird. That was a bit mad, um, especially in your first two weeks of first team football. When, when, yeah. you, when you're young, when you're younger as well, you just roll with things. You don't really analyze it too much, do you? Exactly. Like, I know I didn't have, like, if I was a senior player with a mortgage or if I had kids in the local school, if I had been owed a load of money by the club or if I had a transfer that was about to go through and all these things were now going to go because of this situation or were at risk, that would be different. But I was an 18-year-old kid who was just delighted that I got two half-hour appearances in the first team yeah. thinking, okay, this is amazing. This is going the way I want it to go. Two weeks ago, I was about to get the plane home and give up. Yes, thinking as well now. I mean, we've had Ifs on, obviously, we've had Denzel, and they both joined the club at a, a sort of a boom time. You know, mm. things were looking up, and and you was sort of there just before that. And when you think of the, we've done so well to get out of that administration because if they said to you, as all youngsters could be out of the club, you know, we, you could never have progressed. Ifs, Kale. You know, Denzel would never come to the club. We wouldn't have had that boom time. There would have been a lot, lot of talent let go, which is what I'm trying to get, I think, at that time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, and I, but, but I think and another way of looking at it as well, I think I got into the first team and stayed in the first team initially under John Doherty because of that situation, because um, he couldn't sign players that he wanted. There were a lot of players there that either wanted to leave or Doherty didn't race or were injured. So I think of six-foot strikers, there was very few, if any, other fit other than me. And the way Doherty played at the time, you need a six-foot striker to play. So I was getting my game, I think, every week mm. for, the, for the end of that season. Um, because of? Be, because of the situation. Yeah. Um, so in one way, I was kind of go, it's great that I'm playing. And in another way, it, was kind of, it wasn't great that I was playing. <laughs> Nobody else in the stadium thought it was a good idea that I should be <laughs> playing in the team at that time and would openly and regularly comment on the fact that they think I shouldn't be playing but at the time I was sitting there going okay this is this is first team football I'm at Millwall I, I knew what the club was all about I knew what the fans are like good days they'll sing your name bad days they'll hammer you and I just this is just a run of loads of bad days for the team um load of bad days for the club um and it was just a it was just a real shitty atmosphere it, it was just like so we'll talk in a minute about how good it got when when Warner and Eiffel yeah, yeah, when Eiffel yeah, came yeah. through, or when 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 Reedy and Timmy started to show what they could do. Dice arrived at the club. Nethers came in. Mark McGee. Came, it was there was the glory days, but the the 
the spell under Jimmy Nickel didn't go well. John well, Doherty was fairly bleak. It, sorry, in eight years at the club, you've seen a few managers there. It was like, what was he like, uh, Nickel? As a fella. Oh, yeah. He was, really, yeah. he was really sound. And I think all the senior, like, so I, I was 17 when I arrived. So I wasn't going on any squad nights out. I wasn't going to the club with anyone. Um, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't in any of the, you know, you sit around in the canteen laughing a joke and getting to know each other. I was sitting with the U team. So, but the, the things they used to look at and hear, like some of the players would be saying, like, Jimmy used to go out and piss with all the lads. And it was it was brilliant, and and the lads would be like smoking in front of him, and and like no one, there was no discipline at all. Training yeah, yeah, seemed yeah. to consist of just crossing and shooting exercises and five sides. So there was no real boring tactical structured stuff, but that stuff that you need. Um, do, you think he was, do you think he was doing that just to try and have a, like, get him with the boys and have a jolly? I, I think that was. I, I think, think that was. Just I've, I've, heard, you know, I've heard from other people that can work. If you just get people on board with your character and stuff, it it can. It can work, you know, people want to run through brick walls and it, and it can happen. Yeah, I, I think, and I only know this from, from being able to compare that dressing room with the one under Mark McGee. You, you can have, you can throw in whatever approach you want with the group of players that Mark McGee had and they're going to try everything. They're, they're going to do everything to try and make your 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 plans work. Um, but I think, like, Jimmy, the squad he had, the squad John Doherty inherited and the situation he inherited, um, and even Billy Bonds, the squad he had for the year, um, they were a very different group of players, very different culture than the one that we all created together as a group when mm-hmm. McGee, Ray Harford and Steve Grit took over. Yeah, because that, that, that was a good core young players, but there was a lot of, under Jimmy Nicol, there was a lot of, um, we had the Scottish free straight away, didn't you, that he brought with him from Rafe. Yeah. Uh, David, C- David Sinclair, Jason Dare was horrendous, wasn't he? But the other two were right, Hartley and Crawford. I thought they weren't bad players. If Jimmy Nickel gives you your debut, you, you know, you're happy with that. Then then he goes, you think, oh, what's going on here? And then Doherty comes in only as temporary. What was he like to Doc? It, it would have been a second time coming at the he club. Just, you know, to me back then, he just seemed like a very old man. Yeah, I thought now, yeah. I don't know what age he actually was. He was probably only in his 50s, maybe his 60s. I, I don't know, but he just seemed to be like how he described me, a bit old school and a bit out of touch. He had a very specific way of playing. It was very kind of one-dimensional, just very... And 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 also, he was dealing with a group of players who... Like, ideally, you want to have all players who are focused on nothing else but training and matches. But yeah, the squad yeah. that he was working with were all constantly on the phone, probably to their agents, pro- constantly in contact with the administrators who were running the club. They were trying to chase up whatever money they were owed. Um so it was, it was, it, it, like it was the worst conditions at all to try and come in and be a success. Um, and I think I don't even think he saw it at the end of the season. I think with a game to go, I think he he left. I, I maybe got that wrong, but um, I I didn't particularly take to him. Um, I don't remember anything he said or any anything he did where you know all the dressing room responded and got you know we're in really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. I think there was just a, a the dressing room at the time was a room full of people who just were all probably looking after themselves as much as anything for good reason because everyone's yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone's position at the club even the club itself was up in the air she had a stroke of luck when billy bonds got the job because he had previously been the qpr u team manager right. and when we played qpr um we beat them 3-2 and i got a hat-trick so i was like oh fuck this is brilliant the one <laughs> like this is the only hat-trick i got at the u team so it's like the one manager who saw it is now the first team manager so this is brilliant um, and I think I started the first game of his season 
and scored the first goal that ever scored for the club. Um, Who was that against? Brentford. We won 3 0 on the opening day of the season. And, but I had, <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I had an issue at the time. Um, he was kind of praising me and said, Yeah, no, you, you're, you're, you're going to be in the team. And, 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 and I was doing well. I, I think I scored like three goals in the first five games or something that I played in. But there was a gap. If you look at my appearances, there's a gap of about two weeks in the first month or six weeks. I had to, uh, I had to get circumcised. Quite. Fucking 18 years of age, right? <laughs> what, what happened was, I, I won't tell you exactly what happened. Anyway, it, I, I, need, I, I needed, needed to be circumcised, right? So there's something that happened the previous Easter, right? In, in right, a bedroom. Right. Oh, okay. The, the, the club doctor, when I came back from, from Dublin for the weekend, she goes, okay, this, this, should, this should all heal up. But worst Second case scenario. We're, we're, yeah. I don't know what the medical term is, right? <laughs> But the doctor, I remember at the time, says to me, he said, she, she said, um, blah, blah, I should clear up, but worst case, circumcision is an option. And um, anyway, I put that out of my head. And anyway, it didn't, what I wanted, the healing that I wanted to happen didn't happen. Nothing so I, I needed the surgery. But in order to get, usually when you need surgery in a club, you, you just go and get it because until you get it, you can't play again. But this was surgery that I could have done without from a football point of view. But in my personal life, it meant everything else was on hold. So, <laughs> so I had to go. Just score more goals, mate. Just score more goals. Don't worry about that sort of thing. No, no. So I, I, I so the medical staff are on board saying, yeah, this is surgery that you require. But the problem is you're going to need Billy Bonds' permission to get time off. And I was like, so does that mean I have to ask Billy Bonds? And Jerry, the physio, like, that's what you're going to have to do. So 18-year-old me goes up to the office. Maybe I was 19 at this point. And um, young enough to be full of beans. Oh, I, I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was probably gone bright red. I was like looking at the floor, scratching my head, going, "Oh, boss, um, just you know, have this 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 issue, and and I need surgery, but it'll mean two weeks off." And he's like, "What's the problem? Like, can you can you not run? Is it is, is it hurt when you run?" I said, "No, I run fine." He said, is, "Is it when you kick a ball? Like, is that is that the problem?" I said, "No." I said, "What is it? Is it like tackling? Is it when you run? Is that?" Is that the problem? He, he was kept talking about it in terms of it being a football problem, which of course it wasn't. And I said, no, on the pitch I'm grand. I said, it's just, it's just I'm fumbling my words. It's, it's just with, with, with birds and that. Like, it, it, <laughs> I just can't do anything. Right? I can't do anything. I can't and score in the bedroom, basically. And then Penny drops with Billy Bonds, who is the most intimidating man I'd ever met at this point in my life. Like, like, like what a formidable person to have to have this conversation with and he just looks at me and he went what just shagging did you really care about it? and i want this i just want to die at this point and i said oh and, and in fairness to him he looked up the board looked at the fixture list and he said in fairness between now and next summer there's no gap so he gave me permission to, to do that but i five six games into that season i hurt my groin which they thought was just a, a routine kind of Gilmore's grind. You have an operation and six weeks later you're back playing. So I had the operation and six weeks later it was no better. Um, and then I was diagnosed with osteitis pubis, which is like an inflammation of the pubic bone, which was, was the reason I was getting all the pain down in my groin. But so I thought, great, they know what it is. But I kept asking, okay, now that we know what it is, how do we get, like, how do you treat this? How do you get rid was, of it? Was this, was this the start of the injury problems? 
Well, it, it wasn't actually linked in any way, but but some some of the symptoms were similar at the time. But I kept saying, okay, well, what do we do to get better? And they said, just rest. And I said, for how long? And they were like, going, I kept hearing this phrase, it's like, well, how long is a piece of string? And I was going, this, this is... So basically, I, I was just... that age, you're still growing as well, so... Yeah, but I was, I was now playing no football, so... Yeah. Um, and it ended up being 11 months um until i played again so for the whole season was gone so the, the whole 97 98 season was right off so i played the first half dozen games when the billy bonds didn't play again and by the time i came back fit he'd been sacked and rhino macker took over wow. so my first i don't know 20 games um it was under three different managers <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. i remember you saying earlier about danny hockton this actually came up in the IFA interview, I, th- I think you've seen it. And no, no disrespect to you. And when, when I put online earlier that I was going to be interviewing you today, some people were like he was like Bambi on ice when he first started for us. Mm-hmm. He looked awful. And then just that. And I, I agreed. I saw you and Hoxton come through at the same time. I thought Hoxton was the better player. I, just watching you on the pitch, I just thought, what is this geezer doing? And then out of nowhere, yeah, just, just unbelievable. What what was what played a part in well, that? I, think, you know? I remember at the time when when I so. When I was first in the team, I was physically nowhere near ready. You, you could yeah. have blown yeah. me over. Like, no strength, nothing at all. Like, no experience, no no cleverness, no intelligence. All the stuff that you pick up from playing games, none of that. Wasn't in a particularly good team. We weren't winning. So, any of the, you know, ideally, if you're a young player, you want to go into a settled team that's doing well. That wasn't the case. But I had absolutely no confidence in myself at all. Right. And it would be quite, quite soft at the time in that, if I went out and you told me I was great, I'd believe you. And if I went out and you were singing that I was shit, I'd believe that too. Yeah. So that's not the right attitude to have if you want to do well at a stadium like Millwall during a run of games where the team is playing badly, they want the manager sacked, then you're losing most games. So every time I drove up to the den, I'd be driving to the den on match days. Some days, fucking dreading it. Because I'm, like, I know I'm going to play. I know I'm in the first team. And I know... Probably most of the first team don't think I'm good enough to play. The manager probably is his pain in his arse picking me every week, but he's got no other option because there's no other players who are six foot. And all the fans are hammering me every time I take the pitch. Like This is nothing like I thought being a footballer was going to be. Yeah. But this is what being a footballer is. So I either walk away, which I don't want to do, or else you just suck it up. And then I think it just what happened, a few things happened. Physically got a bit stronger over the couple of years. Mentally got a bit tougher. Felt the homesickness stuff was all gone. I started to feel a little bit more at home. Um, and then I started to work, respond a good bit better working under Rhino and Macker. Um, and better players started to arrive at the clubs. At the club, younger players, other than me, were doing a lot better than I was. So it started to become a different kind of a dressing room. Um, and them and Mark McGee came in. A load of things changed. Next level, yeah. Yeah. So when you think you know, people think, oh, it's easy being a footballer. Maybe maybe a, a club struggling will go out, a big club struggling will go out and buy a centre forward. Oh, we bought this guy for X amount. Now he's going to score all these goals, and you're giving a brilliant insight to like it's, it's fucking real life, mate. It's real life. People don't realise that they think he's a footballer. Life for Riley having a jolly up. They don't understand. Like, that's terrible really? to hear the way you, the way you said you know you're going up to the den. I um, because you, you know do you know where it is. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, it's real life. And, and, and at the club as well, it's not. Um, there, m- there might be some clubs where the car park or the setup is 
Now the players go in here and all, and you're 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 in a little bubble away from us, of course. But Millwall isn't like that. So where where you you drive into the car park and give your car parking spot, and then you've got to walk fifty or eighty yards from your car through the car park into the main reception door, so, which is which same it is today, which is fine. But if you're playing shit and you're zero confidence and the fans that you're playing for are Millwall fans who also think you're shit, that 80-yard walk from your car to the building, um, it, it, that's going to be tricky in itself as well. So yeah. it, it, all the, and it just all became just routine. I thought, well, this is what happens in match days. Um, and then I'd play in the matches. And I remember I used to, when I'd run out on the pitch, as everyone else does, at about 25 past two, we all go out, we're 20 past, 25 past two back then. The keepers might be out five minutes earlier. And anyone who was in the stadium, when I'd run on the pitch, would boo me. There would always just be a like boos and all this. And I'd be, after a while, it just becomes embarrassing to think. And you pretend to everyone else that you either don't hear or, or you don't care. So then what I used to do was time my runs. I think I remember Lucas Neal was, was probably one of the most popular players. So he would get the biggest cheer when he'd run on the pitch. So I would time... <laughs> I would time my run onto the pitch to be level with Lucas in the the hope that their desire to praise him would outweigh their need to boo me. So that running onto the pitch would be a little bit easier. And then just before kickoff, when the PA bloke would call out the first team, every time my name got called out, usual cheer after everyone's name, big boo after my name. And then that that all, I let all that, I let all that in. Some young lads are just, in, like impenetrable doesn't matter what yeah. you're saying about them they hear none of it yeah. eyes on the prize and they're great I was Everyone, everyone's different but like, you, you, you can understand that can easily affect you do you know what I mean especially it, it shows you care as well do you know I mean it shows you actually some people genuinely like you said you made out to the boys you didn't care some people actually wouldn't give a fuck as long as they're picking up their money do you know what I mean but it shows you actually genuinely care it, it's it, like in some way like the, the the pitch can seem a bit intimidating when you're on the pitch and, and there's whatever amount of thousand people chanting that you personally are shit, not the team, just you, you personally, and they're your own fans. So it's a bit embarrassing, but there's nothing really bad can happen. It's when on on nights out in Bromley or whatever, so we would all go out together as a group. So there'd be two as a three, as a four, as a five. So if we went into any pub very quickly, where there's bet out there, no all lads, and um, on a Saturday night, like. A lot of Millwall fans aren't the shyest of people anyway, but throw in drink and whatever else in and they're really <laughs> quick to tell you what they think of you. So you'd be fucking Saturday night after Saturday night. Again, just like I'd go to the stadium on match days, bracing myself for a bit of stick. On a Saturday night, I'd go out bracing myself as well for a bit of stick. On Some egg is going to come up and feel the need to stand for 20 minutes and hammer me and tell me, you know, I pay your wages and your shit and blah, blah, blah. And, as it, you just have to stand there and take it. Like, if me and you met in the street now, and I'm not a footballer, you're some random bloke. If yeah, you start hitting yeah. me, I can hit you back, or I can do what I want. It's, 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 a, it's a level playing field. When you're a footballer and a fan starts having a go at you, if you have a go back or anything happens, like, you're done. You'll be fine. Yeah. You're yeah, getting hammered. It's different. You just have to suck it up. So it just became, those are the things that you became used to doing. Was you fully established by this point? Is this when the um, is this when the injury started to creeping? I saw you played about twenty games that season. Yeah, I was kind of. I remember at that season, there was Moody, myself, Chopper, probably Paul Shaw was probably still there, um, 
And it was usually either me and Moody with either Shawzi or Chopper. And sometimes yeah, yeah. Shawzi would play together, but me and Moody probably never, probably never played together. So, and the way Chopper was playing, he very, very quickly made it like he was going to be, it was going to be, something. yeah, he was, he it was, was him plus one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, but we were doing well. He was scoring all the time. So I wasn't doing enough in training that I could be knocking down the door saying, listen, I need to play more. So um, yeah. I had the odd brief little injury. I think I more or less had a, had a decent run injury-wise. But at the end of that season, or the start of the following season, um, I was all enthusiastic at the start of pre-season, as I am every year. I'm going you know, to train longer. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to drink less. I'm going to sleep more. I'm going to be a better professional. Probably everyone says it at the start of pre-season. But by a month, you're back to doing what you used to do. Two weeks, in, <laughs> two weeks into pre-season, it was a Friday, and I remember I stayed back to do an extra shooting session, um, and I broke my arm, smashed my arm like the the, the two bones here, like the, like just like a break here. Um, so I was told, right, you're out for twelve weeks, um, and by the time I came back from that injury, Ryan O'Macker had been sacked, um, because I was one of I think Eiffel got injured probably, I think, on the same day in preseason and Lucas. It was one of those freak mornings where it just cleared out a few of us. So we started that season um, with an understrength team that didn't start well. So results weren't great. Um, and at the time, actually, I thought Theo had, had gotten it all wrong by getting rid of Ryan oh, Mac. Yeah, I remember I was in, I, because I was injured, I think I was in Dublin. The weekend that they were sacked, so I wasn't. At, I think it was it was a Brentford away was their last game. Yeah, and there was there was just this story that went round that Rhino had been spat on, or someone had. Did you have you heard this? Yeah, yeah. Right now, I don't, I don't know if that was true or if it was one idiot or it was a load of people. But I remember sitting there going, a Millwall fan is spat on Rhino, like Rhino. It's not like a shitty seventeen year old like me who's just come from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It's Rhino. And um, and how the fans have done that to him, Theo has just sacked him. And I remember Macker came in the following day. We, as with it, when every managerial change, there's either a meeting with the manager who's just leaving, or there's a meeting. There's always a meeting with the manager who's just arrived. Yeah, we were all brought together in the canteen. Bob Pearson started going through various different things, and Macker came in to say, I think his intention was to say, "Thanks, good luck, well done, blah blah blah," but he was really, really emotional. He couldn't speak properly. He was full of tears. He'd been crying or he started crying or he was about to cry or something. Jesus. And I remember sitting next to Joe Dolan. And it was one of those few days where you go, like, fucking hell, football is harsh. Mm. Like, this is just, this isn't a game. Like, like what you said a moment ago, you think of footballers and it's brilliant and it's fun and you're doing what you love. And it is all of those. Yeah. There are times see, where you free, sit there and go... This is harsh. Doing what I do. I used to be the other side of it. I used to think, oh, they got a great life, 10 grand a week girls fucking cars through doing what i do I've, I've been to a lot of training grounds i've been around it and i've seen the other side of it the way you treat it the way you, especially these days you've got to eat this they're like they train they train like grounds but especially like the other side the abuse mm. i remember at the time thinking like this is a really really tough world we're in like i knew that anyway before from my earlier time in the first team and just being in the stadium and, and all the rest of it. But I remember thinking it was just like a turning point. Like what Rhino has been spat on. Millwall fans thinks spitting on someone like Rhino was something that's okay. Um, I remember thinking on oh, the fucking idiots. 
like absolute fucking idiots. So um remember thinking at the time Theo had made a big mistake. I was looking around at the room and going, like, we weren't all cheering at Ryan or Macar's gone. It was the opposite. And then McGee walks in and and <laughs> I was so I, I was still injured when McGee came in first, like with my broken arm. And um I I injured players at the time, we went swimming each day if if you couldn't run, you swam. So I I, I was swimming and uh McGee probably <laughs> Well the, the the arm was probably I was probably at the bit where I wasn't Right, <laughs> there's no wound or anything, so it was in the last bit of fitness building stage. And um, McGee must have thought I was a fucking idiot because as I was driving out, it was Birch in the car with me, and Mark Hicks was in the back. We were three injured lads driving to swimming, and I didn't even make it out of the car park, but I crashed. <laughs> a driver was coming up Calmont Road, and there was a massive big reserve team bus parked there, so I couldn't see either side. So I was driving out, I just said to the bus drivers, My all right to come out. Dickhead sitting there with the full road in front of him in full view, just goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I drive out, and then a car from nowhere just smacks, smacks Birch's side of the car, pushes us all up against the reserve coach. And oh my like, god, well, McGee's just walked in the building at this point. Yeah, I'm just and he's thinking like this, this guy didn't his way out of the car park without crashing. So, uh, yeah, anyway, it was probably the first impression I made him. But he was brilliant, like, but in a very short period of time. He brought me into the office and I remember the phrase he used, it was something like, we're going to get like scientific on you. He said, you've been a tall, skinny lad with potential for too long. Um, there was a fitness coach in the room. So he said, you're going to have a fitness regime, which is for you. So I think me, Joe Dolan and, and, and I think Leon Court or something, the idea of someone doing a weights program or anything, like a strength program with any thought behind it at the time just didn't exist. The weights were used by injured lads just to occupy their time or they'd be quite popular at the end of the season because lads want to get ripped to go on the beach like that was the level of professionalism back then but the fitness coach comes in and, and so we'd like two or three days a week of weight training which i needed like i like absolutely needed to toughen up and i was sent to a nutritionist um and he said we need you so i had to give them a sample of hair i want to get a big load of hair and, and i Usually you give them like your pubes or you take a bit off the back. Dickhead here took a big chunk. So there's a couple of photos of me and it just looks like I'm playing matches. And there's look like there's like a load of chalk or something there. It's basically my head because I decided to clear. Anyway, but to send the hair to get analyzed for the quality of my diet or some shit. I didn't explain it. I didn't understand it. So, and I had to weigh everything I ate and drank for a week and give it to the nutritionist. So I had a weight program with the fitness coach and I did strict nutritional diet that I had to stick to. Um, so that was all the physical and dietary stuff. And then on top of that, McGee just had a way of working. He was brilliant with me. I've heard Eiffel, what he said about him as well. But even before I got back fit, he would just, he, a couple of times, so I had the broken arm, and he said to me, uh, I hear you're one of these lads who takes ages to get back fit, take ages with injury. And that, that wasn't true at the time. And I don't think he believed it was true. I think he was just doing a bit of reverse psychology. And it worked. Because little uh, me was like, okay, I'm going to show him. I'm going to get back really quick. I'm going to show him. So I got back really, like, back on time. And I was so eager to impress him from the start. He just had this, 
I don't know, because maybe what he did in his career or the way he carried himself or whatever. I just thought yeah. and Ray Harris. Just had a bit about him. You just wanted to do yeah. the best for him. Yeah, I just like the opposite of say how I remember John Doherty. Yeah, yeah. I remember just going, I, I want this fella to leave training today going, well, dad's dad's is decent. Um yeah. he sounds like he's got in your head but in a good way. Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. got you thinking thinking about straight it. Away. Straight away. Um and he would he would keep me back for various different like centre forward specific training drills. Sometimes me and a lot often it was me and my own, sometimes with other lads as well. It was just little practical um like anyone in the world, any manager in the world can give you a rousing come on, we're Millwall, let's do it, work hard. The fan, that's just generic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you don't have ever to have kicked the ball and you can come up with a speech like that that's brilliant. But what McGee had was, was specific things, like specific technical things he would tell me, do, you know, do this in matches. You, you tend to do this, maybe do this. Um, and I just lapped it up. Um, and then it would think after a year, he gave me the number 10 jersey. I think yeah, I, was, well, I said you went, you went a bit from... From being sort of a young, uh, you know, skinny, like you said, Irish lad that a few people wasn't sure of, to you, you was our main man. You know, big clubs, big clubs are watching. We'll get onto that shortly because yeah. when we went up, you, you got even better. You was even better the year we went up. You know, our first year back in the champ. Um, but let's let's move back and keep it on with McGee, brilliant mm -hmm. manager, brilliant togetherness. Um, we've heard a lot about changing room stories, and I've heard a lot about. Casa del Sadlia. <laughs> I was wondering where he <laughs> I don't want to hear more. <laughs> so I, 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 I moved out of my digs when I was about 19 and I rented a house on my own. Um, a really kind of shitty house. The doors didn't all close and the windows didn't all open. And, but it was the first house I ever lived in where there was no adults. That was brilliant. So I, I rented it for about six months. And then I, so I bought a house on London Road, just opposite the, the graveyard, just around the corner from the training ground. It was like a townhouse. So the sitting room was on the middle floor. It was a four bedrooms or something. But it very, very quickly became everyone's second home. <laughs> so if, if lads wanted to go to sleep in the afternoon between training and an evening match and they didn't want to go home, of course, you can come around to my house. Um, Saturday nights, every single Saturday night, the after party or after session of wherever we were was back in my house. And there was always, I just wanted to fill it with as many Irish people as possible. So every friend I've ever had at some point came over, either stay with weekends or there was two or three lads from Dublin living with me for a while, like family members living with me for a while. People I didn't know. Living with you for a while. <laughs> friends, friends. If I got, a, I got a call one. I got a, got a call one. Christmas period. Um. So we don't really go out at Christmas because you have like three games in eight days or something. And a mate of mine rang me and said, "Listen, a mate of mine is coming back from Australia and he's in three nights in London. He's nowhere to stay. Do you mind if he stays?" He said, of course he can. Like, and, and we did. We have parties like on the Saturday night. You just think how naive and how different this world is, like compared to what lads are now. I was upstairs in the sitting room and someone said to me, he said, uh, there's a couple of lads down there rolling joints and stuff. I don't know who they are. So I said, oh, so I went down and um, true enough, they were. They were rolling away. And I said, all right, lads, how are you getting on? Did, did you come in with anyone? Because no one knew them. He said, no, no, no. We just saw the lights on and heard the music and the door was open. And 
because it was on along the main road, so anyone coming from pubs walking out of Bromley would so walk. So there was there was definitely just random 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 I'm sad. This is my gaff. The fridge, the beers, like the fridge is full of beers. Help yourself there. We're all upstairs. Join us. And then off I went. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And then that was just typical. Like I gave a hundred examples like that. It, it was it was so... Imagine that, imagine that now with camera phones exactly. and social media. Done. Exactly. It, it, was so, it was so relaxed, so naive. And um, it, <laughs> so much fun as well. It was brilliant. <laughs> It was brilliant. Honestly, it was it was, it was brilliant. It was because I am um, again anyone who wanted to stay stayed. Like I wasn't in any way precious about anything that was in the house. I just wanted people to be around. I wanted to be as much fun as possible. Um, it, I, everyone it, loves everyone loves it. The thing is, everyone loves those sort of houses to have. Yeah. But no one ever wants it to be in their own house. You, you <laughs> yeah, did point, yeah. so that was perfect. Because Robbie Ryan moved in as well. Robbie joined from Huddersfield when he was, I think he was about 19. I think Billy Bond signed Robbie. Um, and about a, six months a year after he'd been at the club, we were, so we were both obviously from Dublin. We didn't know each other beforehand. He was two years older than me. And we were just on the way home from some away match on the bus. And he was, he was complaining about the digs he was staying in. And I was like, Robbie, can just move into my gaff if you want. Like, there's if you want. Like, I, I didn't. This is, yeah, said, yeah. Go on. Like, we didn't know each other before, and I swear to God, it was just the start of something. We became inseparable. Like, we, 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 everywhere we went, we went together. Every hotel we stayed in, and away matches we roomed together. 
and we went on hol- holiday together, the girlfriends and all, we all went away together. His family became as close to me uh, as my family was to him. Um, I've met his family, actually. We're, yeah. We're around his house yeah. to do some filming, his wife, his missus, and his, his mum was there as well, yeah. Yeah. Really brilliant. Nice people, yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah. So that, that, it was like a li- just a little patch of Dublin in the middle of Bromley. Um, so it was full of Irish people all the time. I mean, like the fucking Saturday nights, we, we'd have... Like, I'm starting to put this down to the reason you just got better and better because you just you just brought Dublin with you to Bromley. It. it was it was the best. I just created the best of everything. It was like the best thing you could do up to lunchtime every day, which is train and play football with those lads at that time. But then after it, um, some of my best mates that I grew up with were living with me, and they got jobs in the call centres or whatever, and travel places in Bromley. So my my mates were always there. My family were over constantly. So it was brilliant. And and, and then on Saturday nights would be. Again, stuff you get, you would get in trouble now. Like we were playing rebel songs. Like the lyrics of rebel songs are quite, they're quite naughty. If you're in London back in the mid '90s or late '90s, because yeah. they're in a different world then. Um, and we'd all be singing, chanting about like, Republican stuff, and none of us believed any of it. Around, but it was just catchy songs that you'd be getting a lot of trouble if you were a footballer now. Singing. Those kinds of songs. We did like Bel- Christoph, the Belgian, and Timmy, Australian. They'd be singing all these Irish songs. <laughs> this, this is magic. This, this, I never want this to end. Never ever. Yeah. T- um, Tony Warner, I'm sure, told me a story, not on camera. So I don't know no, if you'll be able to tell it. You had, you had someone living with you, and he used to pay the geezer to do things. I can't, I can't remember it was. He's one of your mates from back home. He come over. He's working as a barman. And he used to come around that night. Denzel used to pay him just to do mad stuff. No, I, I know the fellow you're talking about. He was a good mate of Mark Hicks, who played for Millwall for a few years. He had a couple of first-team appearances. Um, but he was from Belfast, and it was Hicks's mate came over. And I think the day that Warner came over to the house, Warner came over to the house one day. I don't know how he had it, but he had a stun gun. This is it. Go on, yeah. Yeah, stun gun. And... <laughs> See, we're, we're adults at this point we're all in our 20s right so this this sounds like a lot of children here but the idea was put forward that you should do it on someone like what does it feel like to be stunned we're like you need to do it and we're like, okay what's he we're going to do it on you and he's like no you're not doing it on me Fuck, I'm not getting stunned like no one knew how sore this would be but we assumed it would be sore so what's you are doing it and so I think we'd offer him money um, and I don't think we knew how strong the stun gun was, so we didn't know whether it'd just be a little nick and or whether you'd do it and he'd shoot backwards or whatever. We didn't know. So I, t- I think this is bizarre scene at the time where we've got a, like a mattress below him, and I think we put a mattress up against the wall. So whatever direction he shot in, he was going to be pushing. <laughs> so I think he made I don't know fifty quid, a hundred quid out of it, and we all pissed ourselves laughing. But that that was kind of the way. It was just all this just stupid carry on just to, it was kind of relieving the boredom, but also, you know, like it relieves the tension of, because sometimes being a footballer can be quite pressured, pressurised. Yeah. You get a lot of spare time as well, didn't you? Like a lot of, especially away games and stuff. Yeah. You get, you get a lot of it and some lads can handle spare time really well and others it's quite dangerous giving them free time, but that's, that's what we did. Oh my God. So, yeah, just brilliant times, and so we, we got promoted, um, and then that was the season. I just the season after you was unbelievable. We nearly went back to back. I remember we, we we spoke before we went on camera. We said 
don't really want to talk about the games because that's you know we all saw that. But the double over Crystal Palace that season, obviously um, Neil Harris got got, uh, got ill, and you forged quite a formidable strike partnership with Steve Claridge. What was that mad bastard like? So there's some good stories about him as well. Well, let me actually just to jump back. I remember the, the, the last couple of weeks, because I, I only remember this because I heard yours chat with Eiffel and he was talking about his hat trick at Cambridge and how that was like a career defining moment for him. Yeah. My memory at the Cambridge game is very different. I, 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 on the Sunday beforehand, um, so it's obviously a really personal story here. The Sunday beforehand, a girl, a girl I knew and I'd been hanging out with for a while her mate and my mate, she knocked on the door and uh, she comes in and she goes, do you know why I'm here? I said, no, no is everything all right? She goes, I'm pregnant. Oh. And we weren't in a proper relationship. We'd been casual enough. And I said, oh, really? Just come in. Come in, do a cup of tea. We talk about it. She says, no, my mate, my mate is outside. She only stayed about 10 minutes. And uh, she goes, I said, well, we've got this game on, on Tuesday. So she was like, well, I come over tomorrow. I said, now we've got this game Tuesday, come over on Wednesday. And um, the following night, then her friend rings and goes, listen, she's after been taken to hospital. She's, there's, there's lots going on. Can you come down? And I was like, I, I actually can't leave the gaff. This is the night before training. I'm not sure I'd be able to do much in hospital anyway. And what's, so within an hour, she looks like she's had a miscarriage. So my head was fucking fried with all this. And so then we played the game against Cambridge. And about five minutes before half time, I went over my ankle. I think I fell behind the goal onto the the ground behind the goal. I can't remember specifically what happened. It was killing me. And I thought, right, at least I'll get to half time and see how I and I took my sock off, sock off at half time and my foot was massive and purple and I couldn't move and I thought, that's my game over. But Daishi was also injured and he had to come off at half time. And I, my memory that night was this Shit. Me, me, me and Daishi were sitting in the dressing room just the two of us on our own and he had a nice pack on whatever part of him was injured I had a massive ice pack on my ankle and he I don't know if you have any dealings with Daishi he doesn't do silences he just talk 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 and he, and he was going on about the way the match was going decisions by the referee his injury whatever it was and I just I just waited for a moment for him to be quiet and I just went Daishi girl called to my house Sunday morning said she was pregnant my mate rang Monday night saying she had a miscarriage my ankle's fucking massive was it? my head's fucking all over the shop here on top of that obviously because Daishi was going on about the importance of the match and I think we'd only two more games to get promoted or something yeah yeah I remember Daishi just goes fuck me he says I'm not normally short for words but you've got me there just, just to rein him in, you know, as, as dedicated as it probably no, was. There was no reason about the guy. You just want to let him know that other matters are fucking sometimes. This is, yeah, so this yeah. is what's in my head right now for, for sharing what's in each other's heads. So there, there was a game in the following week against Wrexham away where we secured promotion, I think, yeah. we went, by drawing one all. And then oh, the 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 Oldham. That, that yeah, against Oldham was whether or not we'd be champions or not. And then we yeah. It was brilliant. But then it, it was over that summer then where... Chopper got diagnosed with cancer. Right. Um, which was just fucking mad. It was weird for everyone because we'd all just gone to, I think it was to Tenerife. There, there was a post-season trip and it was one of the best trips I've ever been on in my life because at this stage, we're 
the closest knit group of any squad I'd ever been in. So with all these different managers, all these different players coming and going, and this group is amazing to be around. And we've just won the league, so we're all in brilliant, like brilliant form. Um, it was the best trip ever. And then I think within a, I don't know how many days of getting back, um, McGee rings me and tells me about Chopper. And I had this weird, so first of all, you're sitting there going, what does this mean Chopper's going to die? Like, I knew nothing about cancer. Um, if he doesn't, will he ever play football again? Will he ever be able to have kids? We had all these questions. We didn't have a clue how to answer any of them. Remember me and Birch and Daishi were asked to go to the press conference in the den where Chopper was speaking to the media. And there was no football at the time because it was close season. It was the summer, so there was loads of media attention. So we went down to it and we were doing all these interviews with media people afterwards going, you know, what's your reaction and all this. And I was just coming out with this bullshit. You know, if anyone can beat it, Chopper can beat it. No idea what I'm talking about. So I didn't know anything about medically what was going on. But what people would say to me was, was I, I found difficult at the time. People would say, Jesus, I heard about Bomber. A lot of fans call him Bomber. I heard about Bomber. And I said, yeah, it's difficult. And then within a minute, so many fans did this. Well, tell you what, it's opportunity for you, son. You, you're going to play more games. I lost count of how many times people said that. Now, I think they were probably... Trying to be positive Maybe or whatever. Trying to make, make, yeah, make light of a bad, as, as good as yeah. you can a situation, no, you know? I remember when I first started here, it was like, hang on, fuck off. Telling me to take the positives out of my mate, like someone who I think the world of. Like, Chopper's one of the most popular lads in the squad yeah. who's got cancer. We don't know how it's going to go for him. And you're telling me I should be. Anyway, but I remember at the time going into that season, me and Claridge were the first two. Um, and it kind of quickly became apparent if we stayed fit, we were always going to be the first two. Yeah, yeah. Um, because Chopper wasn't available. I, I don't even know who the backup strikers were. Moody probably Moody, got this point. Moody's so. gone by that point. Yeah, he, he'd gone at this point. So he left, Yeah, after he got promoted, yeah. yeah it, it was one of the first spells where I kind of knew that if I stayed injury-free, um, I was getting picked every week. And it was 100% the first time in my career where I thought I deserve to be picked mm. every week. And it shows, yeah. it shows you, you'd grown. I mean, g- going from when you said that day you was driving into the den, or uh, many days you did, yeah. thinking, oh, I don't want to be here, to go through things you went through, close friends of yours, mm. you went through a lot there to build the character and then to be to then not thrive off that, but from that become the main man. But it, it was, like, you, you like it was loads, loads of things, like McGee's coaching, Ray Harford's coaching was phenomenal. So the, the, the quality and the ability of all the players around us, um, the 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 bond that we all had, the, the so all those things came to, and I got a lot physically a lot stronger than than I used to be, and I'd stayed injury free for most of pre-season, so I was in the best condition I could be starting the season. So and we just won the championship, we, we just won the the we won promotion, so we were all yeah. feeling good about it's ourselves. Like, like I've I've got I don't know if you've got kids, I've got kids, and like no. one of them's like thirteen now. When he was free, he was so cute that. You know, you say, oh, I wish I could just freeze him and, and keep this forever. Yeah. That's how I feel about that. And probably yeah. you're the same sort of feeling. That team, if we could have just bottled that and just kept that, that them that two season. seasons, yeah. just forever. That, that, that couple of seasons, like the, the promotion season yeah. was brilliant. But then the season we started in the championship for the first time. Um, like there's a big jump between the size of some of the stadiums and size of some of the crowds from... Yeah. 
like the third tier to the second tier. Like, so you're going to Wolves. Conf- confident you can make the step up personally? So we we'd no idea. That was the that was the thing. Like we'd no idea because I had no experience of this division um, yeah. or what it would be like. And us as a group, most of us was like, a lot of us. I think had no experience of it. Um, and then when we went up, uh, we started getting some big results fairly. So we hammered Norwich in the first day of the season. Um, and then with the Crystal Palace game in the first three or four games. And yeah. I remember that one was big because we'd, after the Norwich win, I think we'd lost two or three of the next games. And we were due to play Palace on the Saturday, but the open day was due to be the next day. And that's the day where all the fans and all the players mingled together openly around the den. Yeah, yeah. And we were like going, we lose to Palace. <laughs> on, the back, on the back of losing the previous three games or whatever it was, the open day is going to be a very different experience than if we beat Palace. Mm. And then uh, so the Palace game was amazing. I, I just remember the whole side of the stadium, was Millwall fans, I just remember the noise that we were making that day. We won the game. Um, and I remember then it was the following day, it was the, in in the stadium the following morning, McGee pulled me into his office, so in the opening day, in the open day in the ground. And he said, I, I just remember, he said, uh, he started praising me about the, my performance the previous day. It was one of the better performances I'd given at that point. And he said, uh, he said, Sad, in the fucking 92nd minute or something, you sprinted about 70 yards <laughs> back to win the ball. Like, full throttle, no fatigue, you looked as if it was the first five minutes. He goes, are you taking something you shouldn't be? <laughs> Remember, he goes, and I didn't, I just took that as a compliment. Like, I wasn't taking anything that I shouldn't have been. And he said, uh, and Clinton Morrison was, at this point, Crystal Palace's centre forward. I, I'm talking about the away game at Selhurst Park. It was, because he put, I put us 1-0 up, Clinton made it one all, and then Claridge got two. I think that's how it went. Yeah. Um, but McGee said to me, Clinton had been called up to the senior Ireland squad at this point and he said listen you're very different players but if Clinton Morrison can get in the Ireland squad that's where you need to be setting your sights yeah. um, I remember going well, geez, this is this like, he, he was a goal scorer great hearing this from someone like McGee yeah. but it was oh, Jesus I think this could actually be you was honestly uh, I'm not just saying it because I'm blowing smoke out your ass you was the complete player he was a goal scorer he was quick but you were squad each point, but just a complete yeah, player. Very different. So I, I, it was on the back of that that was going, okay, right, this <laughs> this season could go quite well if that's if that's what my manager's telling me in the first month. Yeah. It should yeah. be a realistic game. Um and then I think I think Mick McCarthy had come to games a few times, but I, he, he always timed it at matches where I didn't play particularly well or I didn't feel like I played well. But then I knew he was at the game on the use call it Boxing Day. Um, we played Palace, and it, it, I swear to God, if you could script the perfect game, that's the game in, in my head that I remember. Because so I had this little imaginary rivalry in my head with me and Clinton. Like I got two and he didn't get any. With the <laughs> Palace Millwall rivalry, first of all, like we spanked them, and and we were rivals also for similar positions in the league. They were going for a playoff position as well. So, um, And then I think even at the end, I think Dyche or Nethers were, were in Clinton's ear for the whole match, winding him up. And then I think at the end of the final whistle, he lost his shit with a couple of them. And, but I remember walking off the pitch and the whole stadium was singing, my, uh, my name was being sung. 
And um, I remember looking up and my sister, my family were all over because it's Christmas. And as I was walking about 10 yards from the tunnel, about to go out of view, I just looked up and I just made eye contact with my sister. And she's kind of giving me one of these. Fucking hell kind of looks like, <laughs> how good is this going? And then I was like, yes, fucking this. and then into the tunnel. And then into the dressing room. And then when you went to that dressing room on a good day and the door closes behind you, um, it was just an amazing place to be. Like, yeah, I'd love to come yeah. up with a fancy phrase, you know, that, that makes people understand what it was like. But yeah, yeah. Days like that, where you do exactly what you said with your three-year-old. He's got, I want, I could freeze this now. Mm. This, I, I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that I could be. There's nothing... There was nothing else that you could have offered me at that moment, mm-hmm. which I if you, if you could bottle that feeling, if you could bottle that feeling and sell it, you'd be a rich man. Yeah, and on the back of Mick being there, I got called up then for the next Irish friendly, which was against Russia in the middle of February, and um, was gone. And at the time, we were looking like we could make a run for the playoffs, um, and I'd just been called up to the Irish squad, who at this point had already qualified for the World Cup that was going to be played in. Japan and South Korea in, in June. Two, two, two. Um, two yeah. In 2002, yeah. yeah. So, uh, it was just, it was that whole year up to that point was going just as well as the season can go. Um, and all the all the sweeter because things had gone really, really poorly in seasons a few years yeah, earlier. And the experience of yeah. all that as well. So, going, hey, this is, this is, this is what I prefer. You, you've mentioned injuries a few injuries there. I think you, you mentioned the circumcision, which I don't really count as an injury. Uh, the thing in your pubic bone, then you broke yeah. in your, your arm. I remember you retiring due to a persistent, was it a persistent hip injury or was it a culmination of injuries? It was a hip injury. Um, so, so, sorry, so after as good as the season was, I'm not, I'm not uh, skating over the rest. You sort of, you sort of seem to play less and less after that season. Injuries again. What, to, what to actually play. happened was, so I played for the Irish team mid-February. Yeah. And Mick McCarthy told McGee there was like three or four more friendlies between then and the date that he'd have to pick the final squad for the World Cup. And if everyone stayed fit, there was probably one spot that either me or Clinton might get. Because right. all the yeah. others were established players and if they were fit, they were going to go. And Mick told McGee that I'm going to be picked in every squad to give me every opportunity to try and prove that I could get that final spot. So like, okay, fucking this is amazing. Um, but three weeks after the Irish game, uh, we played away against Barnsley. And in the first 10 or 15 minutes, I, 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 was, I, I went to shoot. And the defender, I actually don't even know who the defender was. I can't remember. He blocked. And, and we both kind of collided the ball at the same time. And it wasn't even a free kick. It wasn't a foul. It was nothing. But I got this shooting pain in my hip. Like way worse than I'd had before. It wasn't a groin strain. It wasn't a lower back or muscle. It was in my hip. and It was killing me. But we were flying at the time, and I thought, oh, maybe this is just one of those injuries that I could run off. So I played the rest of the game, um, and I got stiffer and sore the longer the game went on. And I was in bits by that night, couldn't train the next day against uh, on the Sunday morning. And we had a Tuesday night's game against Coventry or Derby or somebody like that. And I started, got a couple of injections beforehand, and I think after 12 minutes I came off. And I went to see a surgeon then that week and he said, you need surgery. There's an injury here. This requires surgery. And I was like, okay, I, I appreciate that. But 
we're on course to get in the playoffs for the Premier League. Yeah. Um, I've never had a run like this in my career. I'm going to be called up the next few Irish squads, and it's a fucking World Cup in three months. Like this surgery idea. This Can is the worst time of my life. Yeah. Is, there, is there a plan B here at all? Is there anything that I can just hang on to? So, well, we could go for like a, a kind of another plan where you, you really are selective with how much you train and play, um, and you just hope that you get by. And I said, well, I want to do that. Um, and it didn't work. So I, I, I couldn't train properly. Um, when I played, I couldn't last the game or I wouldn't be available to even play. So by, I think by the early April, mid-April, I'd accepted, okay, this plan isn't going to work. I have to accept defeat here and um, have the surgery. And at that point, Dion Dublin had been brought in um, because they knew I wasn't going to play. Um, so I had the surgery and it was actually waking up from the surgery. The, 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 I don't know if you've ever had an operation, the doctor or somebody comes around with a clipboard afterwards to tell you how it's gone. And I was on my own, so I'd woken up and I was a bit groggy from all the medication. And the doctor goes, uh, how are you doing? I was like, grand. And I said, how did it go? And he started giving me some medical answer, like, that I didn't so, understand. So and I said, no, I said, no, no, no. When, when do you think I'll be back playing? And he said, best case, 12 weeks. And I said, all right, great. I said, matter, like, matter of interest, like, what's worst case? And he said, well, worst case is he won't play again. Jesus. And I was like, I was on my own in the, in, in the hospital bed at this, in, in the room. And um, he just drops the bombshell. Like. I said, so fuck, I said what, are, like, what are the chances of that? Um, and he goes, about 25%, I would say. So this from, is this from just a one-off first time we've ever done an injury? Yeah. And I was like, okay, grand. And I said, okay, well, 25% is a high number, but 75% is a lot higher. So there's a 75% chance, percent chance I get back. So I didn't even repeat that to the physios or the doctors around. Yeah, no, of course not. And so that was like April. So I wasn't allowed to go and watch the first leg of the Birmingham playoff because I was only four days out of surgery. But I was allowed to attend the home leg. Um. And that went the way it did. And then I was in every day all summer, trying to work with bollocks off to get fit. And I was fit enough to join in the last few days of pre-season, which meant I was fit enough to be on the bench. And do you remember we played Rotherham? Lost five like yeah. yeah. there, was, there, was, there was a weird couple of days. It was like Darren a bonus. Four, then. I think Darren Byford got four goals. I don't remember who scored, but I remember I came on in the second half Delighted with myself because I trained a week. Gutted that we lost 6-0, but even more gutted that I'd um, hurt my hip even more. So I got off the... Were you done again in the game? Yeah, it was just like, fuck, it kind of feels bad. But that night, Niall Quinn rang me. Um, and he said uh, he had rung years earlier, in the first week of the Billy Bonds reign, when I got those three goals. He rang years earlier and said, listen, Peter Reid wants to sign you at Sunday. And what do you think? Mm. And, and I spoke to Peter Reid over the phone. And he, at the time, years earlier, said, OK. I, I gave like really honest, naive answer to Peter Reid years ago. So how would you feel about coming up and playing for a club like Sunderland? Massive club, loves football, huge stadium. And I was like, 
to be honest, I, I, I really like it at Millwall. I've just settled in. Like, I just gave the honest, <laughs> stupid <laughs> answer. So Peter Reed is obviously thinking, this bloke's a fucking donut. He's not good. He ended the phone call saying, right, don't listen, I'll get our chairman to talk to your chairman. And anyway, I went out on that Saturday, hurt me, hurt my groin, and that's when I didn't play again for 11 months. The Nell Quinn rings again after the Rotherham game. Howard Wilkinson is now in charge of Sunderland. And he said... Um, he said, how do you feel about playing against Blackburn next week? Sunderland were opening the Premier League fixture their season against Blackburn the following week. And I said, uh, I said, sounds great. Um, but I'm after hurting my hip again. Um, and I don't know if I'd like to. So I went, around, I went around to Jerry, the physio, and um, within a week or so, and said, uh, <clears throat> Quinn, like Quinn's been on the phone, and, and he knew at this point because McGee had been told, and there had been some negotiations going on. Was a, was a few discussed that was what I was going to ask you. Well, well, yeah, well, what I, so my agent was the same agent as Mark McGee's, who also was quite close with Theo. So everyone was in the loop. I, I was the least informed of all because yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I couldn't really ask McGee, or it's like I felt I couldn't appear too interested in leaving um, and yeah. that's a disloyal shitty thing to be whatever so Especially I didn't they fell through and you're still at the club exactly no, I didn't even so basically I, I went around to the physio's house and said um, to Jerry I said listen Sunderland have been on the phone um, and Jerry goes yeah no they're talking 7 million and I said okay and I had a rough idea of something around that. And um, I said, will I pass a medical? And he says, son, you've fucking no chance. I said, like, okay, right. And so I ran Quinn back and said, uh, apparently I wouldn't sign a med- I wouldn't pass a medical, so we, we, we can forget about it for the moment. They signed Torre Andre Flo for about $8 sure, million yeah, at the end of that week. Sure. Yeah, that's what they did with the money instead. But I remember McGee called me into the office then that week and or I think I went up and it was weird. I, I felt like I'm I was kind of like apologetic for even entertaining the idea, even though the idea had been put to me and the club seemed to be fully on board with the and idea. Did you, did you even think to an extent that you'd let the club down in earning a decent bit of money out of you after showing faith in you originally as a youngster? Did you feel that at all? No, well, I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you should have done well. I just no, I can. No, I think very deep, you're very, uh, you're a very deep thinker. So I'm just thinking of every alternative. Well, well, I was. I so I was in the office with McGee, kind of going, wanting to. I said, listen, I, I, they, they rang me, and it all kind of happened quite quickly. And I, I don't want you to think I'm kind of jumping ship or I, I'm fucking off or whatever. And, and he goes, like again, really naive. It's probably not. Yeah most people in this situation will be saying or, or focusing on but he kind of just said listen take your time I said you just get yourself fit you'll be leaving and you know it could be to someone bigger and better than Sunderland you just forget about all that just get yourself fit so I kind of knew the stakes were fairly high like it is for anyone when you're facing a career threatening injury stakes are high but I thought well if I get back from this things could go really well here so yeah. um because there was a rumour as well. There was a rumour that, that Alex Ferguson was, was having you watched. Bob Pearson told me, yeah, Bob Pearson told me that. Um, 
he, he, he pulled me one day and said, uh, before one of the games, in, in that season, he, I was actually, the Birmingham home game, I think was the end of January. And I, I think I had a groin strain and I didn't play. And he, I remember before the game, he just pulled me and said, it's a shame you're not playing, son. Half a football is here tonight to watch you. And I, I didn't ask. It's like asking your missus who else fancies me. You can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to appear breezy, like, oh, all right, yeah, no, I should be okay for Saturday. The thing of speaking to you, that, that, that one, that, I don't think you'd thrive off that either. I think that would be a distraction for you, worrying. Yeah, no. I, so, and, and, but then he said the Man United thing. He, he said, uh, he says, you never guess who was on the phone. And uh, he says, I won't tell you who it was, but it was Man United. So he wouldn't tell me the person. And um, and again, I, I like all, all roads lead to one person at United at that time. Yeah, I but, like I, at the time, I was like, on how do I ask follow up questions here without appearing <laughs> too interested in leaving? It's back. So I just went, oh, I that's sure. I I don't know. I just fobbed it off. And um, so I never actually told who it was or whether it was just one of these phone calls where they say, you know, what's he like? Is he a fucking pisshead? Is he a good lad? Or whether it was actually something more concrete, but um, I didn't ask, so I didn't know any of the details. So I was, I was kind of in this scenario where I thought, right, I didn't obviously want to retire because I thought my world will end if I have to retire. But if I get back fit and fully fit, um, things could go really well career-wise. The incentive there to get fit. Well, I mean, yeah, like, you don't have as a professional yeah. footballer. Those, those added incentives there are just crazy, aren't they? Exactly. So it's kind of... On, on, on the good days where things are going well, you go, okay, that's your motivation. Brilliant. But on the bad days when they weren't going well, you focus on that's the thing that you're going to miss out on. So it was like fucking hell, like being injured because the nature of my injury was really inconsistent. Like with, when I broke my arm, you know it's 12 weeks and they can almost tell you every week what the progress is going to be. Yeah. You'll be able to do this and then this and that. And that's exactly what happens. With this, it was, it was really unpredictable. So... I, I tried a couple of more comeback attempts. I think by the time we played Portsmouth at home um, the following March or April, um, I remember I got to about a week of training and McGee wanted to start me in the match. And Jerry was like, you can't start him in a match. He hasn't played in months and he's facing a career and an injury. Rushing him here is not the thing to do. Yeah. This is the Portsmouth team that Harry Redknapp was managing and Merson was playing and Maybe Sheringham was playing and Sherwood was playing and it was they, they were brilliant. They beat us five 0 anyway. But I came on as the second half sub that day, um, and I remember one of the lovely things about making a million comebacks when you're um, being written off as much as I was. Is every time you make a comeback, people think you've beaten it. So I had about six comeback matches where every time I went down the pitch, the whole stadium would be a standing ovation going, oh, okay, he's beating it. He's back. This is it. Problems are that, that just shows us up where far you've come at the club since what you've yeah, very different from, from the early days. But I, I, then I, I kept, it kept getting, survived the Portsmouth game, played against Wimbledon the next week, didn't last Sorry, you think that's Paul from Mark McGee? As, as good as you said he is, trying no, to rush yeah. back there for his own needs, or would you want him to play? Would you, would you be say, always... Back you, in you all, you always face that. Like when you're injured, you'll face people having a go at you saying, you're not getting back quick enough. You're too soft. You should be playing. Or will people be trying to rush you? And you've got to somehow just manage that. 
because the physios might be holding you back, but the manager might be desperate. To you just they, there's there's always that's always factors. It's always part, 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 part. Yeah, everyone's looking after their little patch. Um, so they played a couple of games, set back bad as ever. Um, and then it went into the summer of two thousand and three, or at the end of two thousand and two, back in the surgeons, and he says, uh, "It's okay, you've kind of got to." And at this point, Mark McGee is with me and Theo. Now, chair, managers rarely come to medical appointments. Chairmen never do. But McGee and Theo came with me back in his office and he said, you either retire or you have another operation. But I have to warn you, if you have this other operation, you may at most get a few years out of your career till your late 20s. You definitely won't be able to do a full pre-season and you'll never be able to do a crammed fixture list like over Easter or Christmas. And you're going to be knackered long term. You'll need a new hip by 40 and you'll be in chronic long-term pain. When you're 23, like you don't give a shit about what you're going to feel like when you're 40. So straight away I went, I'm having that. Um, so I had the operation, but every deadline, every target the surgeon said that I should make, I missed. So if you, say, you should be running by then. I was nowhere near. It should be kicking the ball. I was nowhere near. So it was this gradual realization over the next 12 months that, I've no chance here, um, and the more it was, the more it was painful. The more I'd bullshit about it being painful because in, by this time word had spread that if I don't come back from this, I'm not coming back at all. So I, I would go through the motions and tell everyone how you do. I said, oh, all right, yeah, I should be back running by. So I to everyone else, I just said the positives. I would be back by a certain time, but in my head, it was just slowly. Fucking dying on the inside. I'm devastated. I only got choked up there. That's fucking terrible. Well, it, it was like it was. If, I don't know if it's compared. Like, think of the thing you like doing more than anything in your life that you've dreamed of doing more than anything, mm. and and you get to forget all the bad days early on, but you get to a point where all the boxes in your life are ticked. Every everything about how you want your life to go is going that way, and then this thing happens. And then it was just slow, gradual. Just it's not just the football. You got to say the things you love doing. As much as you love what you was doing, it was actually your job. It was your interaction with with yeah. all your friends. Well, my mates are my mate. Like, yeah. if I'm not a footballer, I wouldn't have met Robbie Ryan or Tony yeah. Warner or Chopper. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have moved to London. I wouldn't be living in the house I was in. I wouldn't have had the social life where the everything was reliant on me being a footballer. Um, but I, 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 so I got to that summer. Couple of more comeback attempts failed, and so I was in training every day. Just under oh, contract, until under contract, my my contract was going to run until the summer of two thousand and four, and I realised at the start of in the middle of August two thousand and three, um, that I needed to retire. I was in my back garden. I was living in a house at this time. We'd moved out of the house the same, um, <laughs> so. In a different house, and they did a, a, a swimming pool in the backyard. And me and Joe Dolan and a couple of other mates, we were just, just in the pool, just lobbing a ball to each other. Middle of the afternoon, like no drinking, no party. No, it was just on a sunny day, sitting in the pool. And I went to jump, and I completely like fucked my hip again, like a really most basic movement possible. Yeah. And then I was like, um, and I, I knew I was on my last legs anyway at that point. I thought one more. One more setback and I'm done. But I was like, I 
I didn't want my last, last setback to be in my backyard with my mates. Yeah, you're literally going to be giving it your own training or... Yeah. yeah. So I went, I, I went in to train and anyway, and declared myself fit, told the physio, who, he knew because the, 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 the phrase that the surgeon said was, he said, we're in pain management phase here. You're always going to be in pain. It's just how we manage it. So I knew that the idea of waiting until I was pain-free was just a waste of time. So I could go into Jerry and say, it's sore, but it's a manageable amount of soreness. I want to go training with the first team. So I limped my way through training for a few days, hid as best I could, came on as a second-half sub against crew. Same again, standing ovation. Everyone's like, but before the crew game, I remember being in the medical office with, the, with Jerry and McGee this ridiculous conversation where I was going, if I play again, will this risk my career-ending insurance? Because I keep getting letters from the insurers saying that if I play again, they'll take it that I've recovered from the first injury. and yeah. blah, blah. I couldn't really understand it. So well, something, just, something you've got to consider, obviously. Especially just, when asking these questions, but I knew in my head that I, I'm on however long this comeback lasts then I'm retiring, but no one else knew this. And so played a second half sub on the Saturday and it was away against Stoke the following Tuesday, three nights later. And <clears throat> I remember going up on the bus and my hip was killing me. Like I was on regular painkillers all the time and double dosing and painkillers and I would get an injection before the game. Um, but the pre-match warm-up at Stoke we're all on the pitch. All the players are together as a group running up and down. And then I was like 20 yards away on my own on the ground, just doing hip stretches. I couldn't even do the warm up. And then in the second half, I was sent on, played the last half hour. And at that point, I knew like, I'm not going to be in another pitch again. So I knew this is my last one because I was so bad. I knew I won't be able to join in training session again, let alone blag my way to the weekend, to the next game. And I remember being on the pitch. We drew in it all. But I was, I was on the pitch and there was, there was an injury or there was a couple of delays as there is in all matches. And I remember just standing there, just kind of looking around. Um, not, not really knowing what. I'm, I was going, to, am I meant to savour the view? Am I meant to feel fucking sorry for myself? Am I, mm. I, I don't know what the right thing to... Anyway, so I, nobody knew what was going on in my head. Um, they obviously knew I was struggling because I was struggling. Yeah, and I remember sitting in the dressing room afterwards and I think Andy Roberts was sitting next to me and he just go he saw, I was like in my own world I was sitting there in the dressing room saying nothing and there was loads of high five and back slapping going on in the dressing room because we got a good point away at Stoke and I was sitting there just in my own little world and, 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 and Andy just goes cheer up like, you, you did well you came on you did a good job gave me some football answer yeah, you're able to so you're able to so far off football I mean, that I, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Like that that's that's the point that I gave some bullshit like that. And then um the following Wednesday, <clears throat> without telling anyone, I lived with my missus at the time, Hixie, who I still lived with, I had an agent at the time, all my family, not one person knew that I was going in that morning to retire. Um because I didn't want to have conversations about it i didn't want people to tell me they felt sorry for me i didn't want people to try and talk me out of it 
I knew like my body was fucked. I could like mm. bending over, rinsing my mouth after brushing my teeth. This was this was that level of this is this is these are activities that were problems. So you can forget about trying to be a footballer. Um so I went in and knocked in the office next to the physio room and said to Jerry, have you got a minute? I called the doctor in as well. And we were there for an hour. And they were brilliant, the two of them. They just let me talk. And I, I, they kept asking me questions and said, listen, if you want to go again, we'll try again. And I just called out. Well, the it's said, not just your body there, it's your mind as well, mentally. It must be gone. It was, I was gone. Like, it was just gone. And, and I was like, every time, so they would have been aware of all the medical stuff. It was like every target the surgeon has given me, I've missed by months. You know what he said before the second surgery. You know what he said before the first surgery. And now you know what it feels like being my body like this. And then they waited patiently for me to be the one to say it. They were brilliant. Um, and at the end, I just went, yeah, fuck it. I just, I just need to stop wasting everyone's time and just call it a day. And um, and at this point, I could feel myself. I, I was starting to get, starting to cry, and which is fine. Crying is fine, but it's a problem if you have to walk out of the room through a physio room, which is packed full of footballers. Yeah, yeah. And I was going. They're probably all scratching especially, their heads. Especially in, the, in them times as well. You know, yeah, it was, it was probably scratching their heads. Their life, but in the nineties, like that, that, that sort of early noughties, nineties, you you're going to get shit for that. Or what's it? What's up with him, sort of thing? Well, but it was like. They're probably all sitting there going, why is, why is the physio and the doctor been in there for an hour? They're probably waiting for treatment themselves. Of course. Um, anyway, so I, I came out of the office, just didn't make eye contact with anyone, just went straight into my car and went home because Jerry had said, listen, we're going to have to tell McGee. And I was like, I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, how am I going to tell McGee? Um, and I was like, do you mind if you do it? Because um, at this point, like Ray Harford had died a month earlier. We'd been at Ray's funeral. And Ray Harford and Mark McGee in my life at that time were like gods. Yeah. Um, I was like, how am I going to go into McGee? So anyway, Jerry said he'd tell him. I said, Ray, I'm going to drive home. Um, I'll come back in a couple of hours after training when he's ready to, to, to talk to me. And in the meantime, I went down to the park and just wrote the same text to everyone I knew. Um, telling them what happened but the last line was like don't ring me I can't be arsed talking about it I'll speak to you whenever so my family my parents my mates everyone in Dublin all managers whoever I thought would want this text got this text and everyone was told don't ring me and um, one of my mates thought it was a wind up thought that someone else had got my phone but his reply was best news I've heard all day you were fucking tonight anyway <laughs> so um, but every, every, like every response was was, uh, was lovely, was supportive and all that. And then uh, so I went home and say to my missus and to, to, to my mate going, I just retired there. Um, and it was just weird. It was like people reacted as if someone died. <clears throat> I reacted like the world was over, um, <clears throat> that I would have no life ever again, that I'd never... Yeah, I mean, it's been tough. But I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to rub it in even further, but that where you'd come from and you got to and you was like our main man with even bigger clubs bidding, it's never a good time for that to happen. And I, said, I don't want to rub it in. But for, I know. Yeah, no, it's like, the, like the worst time for it to happen. When you're, yeah. Usually people get injured, they fall out of football, they drop down the leagues. 
it yeah. happened for you at a point in your career when you was just about to go bang. Yeah, and it was, which made it even more difficult. Yeah, but because in addition to not being able to do the one thing I always wanted to do, I was left wondering what if I'd have stayed playing. Yeah. Which is an unanswerable question. Maybe I would have returned and been nowhere near as good and would have gone down a few levels. Maybe I wouldn't have been good enough to go back into the Millwall team. So, But you don't know. So there's all these what-ifs. And I tormented myself. Um, and then the lads got to the cup final within a few months. And on yeah. the one hand, I was going, this is amazing. I can see my best mates like, playing. But even by even in a few months, I started to withdraw. It was like... You're in the squad or you're not. Yeah. You're a Millwall player or you're not. You, 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 you can't kind of be a Millwall player or you, you sort of, you either are or you're not. And I'm now not. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to hang around with footballers because footballers focus on football stuff. They fucking complain about whether they're going to be in the team or not, about the bonuses or whether they're going to get promoted, whether they'll get relegated, whether the manager is doing any good. And I didn't want to hear any of that. So, but most of my mates were footballers at this point. So I didn't really want to hang around with any of my mates. Um, so it was just, it was just shitty. It was weird. And I, I, I got loads of lovely, like I still have a box in, in the next room of printouts of the emails that I got from fans that were sent to the club. All these like lovely, brilliant messages I couldn't so read it. You know, it took me <laughs> fucking seven years to realise it. Like, it. So it was, it, it was weird because for a while I, I had, um, I just kept getting sympathy everywhere I went, which used to drive me mad. Everywhere I went. Because it's not like, a, like I'm sure you've gone through shit and you can decide who you tell. But the yeah, shit I went yeah. to was public. So everyone knew about it. So anyone who met me if it was the first time they met me since it happened, they would feel that's obliged to give me some speech discussion for them. Yeah, it's like that's oh, all they, that's all they mean to, yeah. to have a conversation with you. Yeah. But it's it, like I'm not not. It's what I would say to me if I met me back then. Yeah, yeah. But I just thought for the hundred, two hundred, three hundred time, I'm hearing the same speech about what it could have been, or and feel sorry for me, or all this kind of stuff. And it was, yeah. and at the time, I thought this this is going to be how it's going to be forever. Yeah. This shit. Um, so it was it was really difficult. And then um just kind of had to adjust to being outside the bubble. But I didn't really think there was any place for me anywhere else because I had no trade, had no qualifications, had no interest in anything else, had no experience in doing anything else. It was 24 going on fucking unemployable. Well, mate, you, you can't say you didn't <laughs> fucking try your absolute best. Yeah. It's a funny I knew what had happened, but I didn't know yeah. speak, like fully. And speaking to you now, like, honestly, it's, it's affected. I'm devastated for you, honestly, mm. generally. Like, it's affected me. Mm. But, but it was um, happening just for years. Like, like, and, and I kind of, <clears throat> I, I knew it would be this way. There'd be days where I'd be really grateful for the memories I have, and mm. I thought yeah. I, I knew I knew there'd be days where I'd be gutted for the days that I didn't get to have. Um, and at the start, it was mainly all the second part. It was, it was all, yeah, all I, did. I just focused on poor me, can't believe this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now, like, it's taken me 
15, 20 years, whatever it is, all I think of now is it's just honestly, it's just the yeah, uh, it's good. The, the, you know, coming in and out of the tunnel at Millwall, like being in the dressing room at Millwall, in the stadium, being on the pitch, some of the wins, some of the defeats, some of the nights out, like mm. the just the, the the memories. Like I'm 41 now. Like I I'm just really grateful. I can sit here now. You get people like me who are fans. I would have given anything to play one game for me. Or what, yeah. you know what I mean, so you know, it's a shame because everyone has regrets. But you you give it your everything. You have got nothing to regret. You know, you was out of your hands, wasn't it? With the injuries, yeah. you know what I mean. But anyway, like that was the that was the culture at the time. Everyone at that club gave everything, and you kind of had to do that if you knew you if you, if you wanted to survive. Like loads of lads came and went from the club who didn't give everything, and that's why they didn't last. But the squad that we had under McGee, particularly in Rhino initially. Those lads were like it was it was it was a fucking pleasure playing with these lads and hanging out with them, um, and everyone just everyone just made everyone around them better, um, either their personality or how they play football or just the way we were with each other. Um, it was just brilliant. So I'm sitting here now, going, I'm I'm delighted to have these memories to to, to chat about. If um, you could choose one memory from your time at Millwall, a good memory. Chopper's goal against Watford. Um, I remember. I, I, I remember the game. Viali was the manager of Watford. They were due to play Arsenal the following week in the FA Cup, and he did an interview where he said playing us compared to playing Arsenal next week was like driving a Ford Mondeo compared to a Jaguar. Prick. And we were going exactly. We we're going you fucking prick. You don't. You don't lead a team to India. Yeah, it was th- that I I don't know, I can't remember how that information got to us, but it got to we all found out about it. Um, but we were flying anyway, and I remember Ramon Vega was their centre half. It was on stupid amount of money. He was on, apparently it was on like eighteen twenty grand, which at the time was huge. Yeah, we were all on buttons by comparison. He was shit, and he got sent off before the end. And we 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 were winning the game. Was it three 0 or three one? Chopper comes on. And like if you, you you could break down down this moment for a number of reasons as to why it was my standout memory. First of all, the goal was a belter. It was a brilliant goal. Second of all, just the occasion. It was New Year's Day, and we were in the promotion hunt, and we just beaten a massive club like Watford. Um, also, massive fuck you to Viali. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but even even the, the area of the pitch that it happened in, it happened in front of the away end. Yeah, it's perfect. Who had a big screen? Which replayed the goal in in the in the match. So when he scored the goal, we didn't we didn't prepare this. Warner, everyone, we all ran to to Chopper. Birch, I think, said, "Pick him up." So we just picked him up. He was up on everyone's shoulder, and we were staring at the fans. And as we were looking at the fans, the goal was being replayed on the screen. And then when the goal went in, we all did a, another re and a, another celebration and I remember being on the bus on the way home after every match you always ring family or friends or your missus or whoever I remember speaking to my mum so this is New Year's Day 2002 and I said to her I said if I never play football again this is the day that I remember more than anyone else and I tried to get across to her why the moment was special but I don't think you can until you're in it um, yeah, yeah. and then 10 weeks later I got the injury which I never recovered from um, and for years, that was the only the photo of that celebration was the only 
football photo that was in my house. You could walk into my house now, you'd never know I played football at all. But like, honestly, going back to the, the, the day we found that chapel was, was, was sick. And then the few weeks of going, where, how is this going to end? Um, and so there's that personal thing of him coming back. And then just the team thing of it being a, a game we needed to win. Um, and it was just this camaraderie thing that we all had. Um, and it was just, it was that moment, just, it was all wrapped up in a fucking box in wrapping paper with a bow on top of it, <laughs> captured in a photograph. So it's like, right, that's the photo that's going to come with me wherever I go. Oh, mate, it's brilliant. Um, for anyone who on the back of this would want to read your book, your book is out. Yeah. I was going to mention the book because I feel like in any of the interviews I've done, it just feels like a really insincere interview when it sounds like you're trying to flog a book. I'm not here to flog the book at no, all. I, no, you didn't. No, going to happen without the book. I, I'm now, I knew you had a book out. I saw someone post it on Twitter the other day and mm. I, um, on the back of talking to you, wouldn't have been definitely having a look at it because, um, mate, I'm like, again, like I said, you know, Denzel's brilliant with, with the laughs. Paul I feel give a give a really good insight. You know, we've managed management with McGee, but again today is next level again, mate. Like, mm. Unbelievable stories, but like just so many highs, so many lows. It's, it, I'm That's glad I'm, I'm glad we've done yeah. it, but at the same time, I'll take some like upsetting things away from this. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. where I'm gutted for you, but uh, from both sides of it, it's been emotional, shall we say? Mm. But it's good, like you said, the highs and lows, but that's that's what football is like. Yeah, it is. And the highs and the lows can happen seconds apart and they're ridiculously in different worlds. And you just have to find a way of just fucking trying to just keep on tracks as you're going around. And we, I was lucky in that the fellas that I got to play with, like we have a WhatsApp group now. Um, I don't know, 15 or 20 lads from that squad or mates from that squad. And I don't say a lot in it, but every message that comes in, 80% of them make you laugh. Like, yeah. it's, it's really fun. Really yeah, it's good to, it's good to be, I, I said it to the other boys and I said, you know, even as far down the line as it is, that time that you all had as players that we we had as fans as well, you know, not, not in togetherness now, to, to bring these together. A little bit of insight from the players. The fans are absolutely, absolutely love them, but it wasn't just brilliant times for us. For a lot of you players, it was the best times in your careers as well, you know? It was the best time of my life, not just my career. Um, particularly the 18 months, the two years of getting promoted under McGee and then the first year in the championship, playing with the Irish team and all the, the, the non-football memories and, and the stuff we did off the field. For those two years... Um, Life was as good as life could ever be. Long live the long live Casa del Sads, eh? <laughs> yeah. Mate, honestly, it's been absolutely it's been brilliant. Nice. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. No bother. Top man. Thanks. Thanks, Sads. See you, mate. Nice Cheers, mate. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 